Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Childers. The Bible has some very specific instructions for us regarding sexuality and morality, and those instructions stand in contradiction to where our culture is at. So today we're going to discuss the question, why does God care who I sleep with? My guest today is Sam Alberry, and he's an editor for the Gospel Coalition and a global speaker for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. He's the author of a number of books, including a book that I recommend to everyone called Is God Anti-Gay? And he's written a book called Seven Myths About Singleness. His latest book, Why Does God Care Who We Sleep With, is out now, and you can follow him on Twitter. He's active on social media, and we'll put a link in the podcast notes where you can connect with Sam. But Sam, it's such an honor to have you on the podcast. I think that you bring a unique perspective to a topic that can be very sensitive, it can be very personal, and even at times uncomfortable for some people to talk about. And that's the issue of human sexuality and what God has to say about it, what He thinks about uh, human sexuality. And so for those who may be unfamiliar with you and your life and your ministry, give us a little background into your story. Where did you grow up and what was life like for you a child? Were you raised in a Christian home? Home. Tell us a bit about that and, and when you first began thinking about this issue. Thank you. It's lovely to, to be with you. Um, I'm, I'm English. I grew up in uh, the southeast of, of England um, and didn't really, we didn't go to church or anything as, as a family when I was growing up. Um, I was lightly brushed with nominal Christianity just through my education. We, we would have sort of religious education classes um, all the way through our schooling. So we, we kind of got bits and pieces of, you know, Jesus' morality and those kinds of things. But I never really heard the gospel or never really heard the message of Jesus until I was 17. And I had a couple of good friends at that time who invited me to their church's youth ministry. I had nothing else to do <laughs> one particular week. So I, I went along and heard the gospel for the first time. And the first time I heard it, I believed it. Um, it just rang true. And I realized immediately that the Jesus I had grown up imagining, who was, to be honest, rather bland, uh, that the Jesus of the Bible was far more compelling mm. and also much less easy than the Jesus I had grown up imagining. And and those yeah. two things have certainly uh, continued to be the case. Um, yes. He is compelling and he's not easy. Um mm. So I kind of became a Christian around that time, just as I turned 18, as it happens. Um, fairly soon after that, I, I, I felt God calling me into pastoral ministry, and that was not remotely intuitive. I, I'd grown up with a deep fear of public speaking, and so 
the idea of you know standing up in in front of other people and being a, a preacher and a pastor was not the natural direction to have imagined myself going in but mm. i just sensed god wanted me to be someone who taught and tried to encourage other christians and to to build up the church so mm. um went to university did some training went to seminary got ordained in the church of england uh took on different pastoral roles uh, for several years, worked for two different churches. And then it was about four years ago that I started working with, with Ravi Zacharias Ministries and getting more involved in some of the topics that we are discussing today. I am, yeah. you know, as a, as a teenager, I, was, I became aware that I was attracted to other guys rather than to girls. And therefore, it's, this has been an issue in my own discipleship, I've had to really think through and think very deeply about. Um, and again, in this area, no less than any other, Jesus is more compelling than any alternative. And it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that's helped me is just realizing that's the case for all of us um, on these yes. things. So I then had opportunities to, I never really wanted to to speak publicly about my own sexuality and my own story, but I felt the Lord kind of leading me to do that a few years ago, not really realizing what I was letting myself in for um, in the process yeah. of doing that. Um, so, What kind of responses do you get from other Christians when you share your experience of uh, even growing up uh, in your book, you talk about growing up and, and when you were a younger child, um, you know, you noticed that all of your guy friends were talking about girls and you didn't, you didn't feel the same feelings that they felt. That must have been a very confusing time for you and a difficult time for you. But as you've spoken out and, and begin to share some of those stories and some of that background, what, what has the response been generally from, from Christians? Yeah, it's been, um, I mean, generally very appreciative. Um, mm. I think, I mean, part of the reason for sharing that story is I want other Christians who are going through the very same experiences to know that they're not on their own. Mm. They're, they're not a complete aberration in the Christian world for, for wrestling with this. Um, and I want Christians who've never had any experiences like this just to get a sense of what it can feel like for someone who is wrestling with that, hopefully encourage them to be more empathetic, more understanding. Um but the other thing I've I've found is that, you know, discipleship has the same superstructure for all of us. Jesus says that for any of us, you know, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So that that is the deal all of us are on. And I think any worked example of doing that will help other people in their own areas where they are particularly feeling the the cost of discipleship. So, yes, I've I found quite unintentionally, but it. But it makes sense in hindsight that actually sharing on this has has kind of helped people bring their own discipleship into sharper relief. Well, I know that's true for me because when I read your book, Is, Is God Anti-Gay?, I found it one particular paragraph very convicting. And uh, I don't have it in front of me, so I won't be able to give a direct quote, but I actually do quote this in my upcoming book that'll be coming out in the fall, where you talk about how some people would say to you, 
well, you know, because you, ex- you have this uh, experience of same-sex attraction, you must, the cost is higher for you, or you must have to give up so much more than everyone else. And your response to that was so powerful. Essentially, you're saying, no, the gospel requires everything of all of us. So it, it, if you don't understand what it is to completely deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow Jesus, then you, it's possible you, you may not understand the gospel. And I, I think that is such a powerful point because it's something that the God, that God requires of every Christian, doesn't he? It's not, it's not just people with particular struggles or, or, or particular things that they're walking through, but all of us, we, we all have to be willing to lay down our homes and our finances and, and every, all of our desires and everything. And, and I love that, that you sort of make that point for the larger church. Well, it's exactly what Jesus says, isn't it? I mean, deny yourself. That's, that's not going to be easy for any of us because for, for any of us, that's going to involve saying no to some very deep longings, ambitions, you know, dreams, instincts, affections, whatever it might be. And it, it will land with differing levels of heaviness mm, yes. on different areas of life, but it will land with heaviness somewhere. <laughs> um, I often think in terms of, you know, Jesus then says, you know, if you, if you, save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life for for my sake and the gospels, you will save it. And I think part of what he's saying at least is that there will be times when following Jesus feels like it's killing you, um, feels like he's, he's taking life away from you. And not, not for everyone will that be in the area of sexuality. There will be an element of self-denial for everyone there, but that may not be where the Mm. biggest kind of gut punch feels like it's landing but it'll it'll be somewhere for everyone, and I've, I found that that's helped me because it's it's put my own battles and at times heartaches in in just a broader perspective of thinking. Well, mm. I'm, I'm not being given a worse deal than everybody else here, and I, I hear some Christians who are single and celibate because of their sexuality, sort of in, implying that we are the you know, special sacrifices of our generation or something like that. And I just don't think that's a healthy way to mm. think. Um, we, we we don't really know the extent to which we see, you know, in, in any Christian around us, the extent to which they are really denying themselves and taking up their crosses. And someone who may look like they've got everything together and that, that, that their life is easy, you scratch under the surface and you, you begin to realize, no, no, there are some profound sacrifices that person is making from Jesus. So, Well, and as a person who experiences same-sex attraction, uh, even from such a very young age, how does, how does this play out in your walk with God? What does it mean for you as a follower of Jesus to, to experience these attractions? Uh, and, and how does that affect your discipleship? How does that work itself out in your life? Yeah, and in one sense, it's a hard question to answer because it's the only context I've known. Um, but it, I guess what it means is I, I know that there are inclinations within my own heart that are not of the Lord, inclinations that feel very instinctive, that feel very native to me, that feel natural in one sense, mm. but yet which are clearly not um, how God has designed me to be. So it's a very vivid and visceral reminder to me of how my affections are disordered. Um, Mm. And just because it feels natural to me doesn't mean that's how God made me. It just, it's a sign more of how sin has distorted me. 
Um, mm. And so the, the question then is is trying to respond to those inclinations and those feelings when they come. We're called in the Bible to to mortify our sins, to put our sins to death. And so that's you know there there are times when that's more exhausting than others. Um, yeah, there there are times I. I feel a deep sense of grief about some of those feelings. Other times when those feelings are just less prominent and I'm less conscious of them. Um, so, and I guess it's a, I'm assuming um, that's sort of the case for everyone with whatever their sexual temptation is. Um, mm. And any, you know, we're, we're called to, to live in a right relationship with one another and to, to honour one another and to have the appropriate affections and feelings and concerns for one another. And mm. that's going to be a battle. Um, and, yeah. and for me, it's a question of if I, if I feel a very deep affinity with another guy and a particular, you know, friendship emerges, I've just got to be very careful that I'm I'm not getting too emotionally um, dependent, or that this isn't becoming a kind of inappropriate yeah. friendship in my heart in some way. Um, yeah. So that that requires vigilance. It requires knowing oneself. It it helps to know what some of the early warning signs are of that process. It helps to really helps to have other people that you can can pray with about these things and who will who will walk through these things with you. So uh, yeah. that's that's been a huge help. I can imagine community would be so important. And, you know, we live in a culture where a lot of people find the church's teaching on sexuality to be difficult in all arenas, yeah. uh, not just with the issue of homosexuality, but with premarital sex and extramarital sex. And we're seeing more and more in our news feeds even about polyamorous relationships. And, and it just seems like for the Bible to teach that sex should be between a man and a woman within the covenant of marriage for life just seems really kind of crazy to people who live in our culture. And so I think there are a lot of misunderstandings floating around. And again, there probably have been Christians who have sort of uh, contributed to the stereotype of, of God not being loving toward those who might experience these these attractions or and not just in the area of same sex attraction again but even in the broader conversation of sexuality but if someone's listening and they maybe have a child who is struggling with this or maybe they themselves are struggling with these attractions and these feelings if you could speak to them what would you say is God's heart toward those who experience same sex attraction and how does you know how does that contradict how some Christians have maybe portrayed God's heart toward them? Thank you. Um, that's yeah. I, I think that the the key thing here is that we know God draws near to the brokenhearted, those who are aware of their own spiritual bankruptcy, those who are weary and heavy laden. We know there are so many scriptures that are, are waving at me right now that show us that the heart mm. of Christ is inclined towards those who are, who really are sick of their own sin and who really do want to be done with it. So yeah. I think sometimes that the stereotype has been that God wants you to go away and, and fix yourself up and then come back. 
when you when you've sorted yourself out. That is the antithesis of the, of the gospel. Actually, Jesus has come precisely to be good news for sinners, which includes sexual yeah. sinners, which includes people whose sexual sin is is same-sex attraction. Um, so this isn't too big a sin to keep us away from Jesus. Um, it can sometimes feel like it is. It can sometimes feel as though this is, you know, several steps beyond what everybody else is is dealing with. But we know that Jesus looks on the heart. Um, yeah. So I think if the if the person is wrestling with this as an issue, feels convicted of their sin, wants to follow Jesus, um, then He is right there with them and 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 for them, and His Spirit is in them. Part of the reason we we are convicted yeah, of our sins yeah. in the first place is the the kind work of Jesus through His Spirit. So I wouldn't want someone to feel that this automatically yeah. disqualifies them from you know, being able to have a relationship with Jesus. Um, and the thing I'd want them to know above everything yeah. else, and again, this contradicts the, the stereotype, is that Jesus' words are good for us. Um, Jesus can never be anything other than good for us. Yes, yes. And the culture, and unfortunately some Christians, paint Jesus' words and the Christian sexual ethic as if it's merely a kind of harmful, repressive constraint, um, as though it's all profoundly bad news and really bad for you. Yeah. Uh, that, that cannot be the case if Jesus is who he says he is. We'll be right back in just a few moments to continue our conversation with Sam Alberry about his new book, Why Does God Care Who We Sleep With? But I want to take a moment and tell you about a ministry I partner with called Impact 360. They have an online course called Gen Z Lab. And today's teens are passionate. They're they're very socially aware. They're achievement-oriented. But they're also living in a completely different world with new rules. And they need to be equipped with a biblical view of the world. So the Gen Z Lab is your guide to leading the next generation. Come away better equipped to champion this generation as they navigate a post-Christian culture. Go to impact360.org for more information. Sam, you've spoken about how you are celibate. And I think that this you're uniquely qualified to speak on this issue because you, you walk this. And I'm sure, as you're aware, a lot of the, the Christian revisionist arguments that are coming along now that are, are trying to make a biblical view fit with uh, the, the idea that God might bless homosexual relationships. So they're trying to, to, to make that fit. And one of the points they make at reformationproject.org is that the Bible teaches that celibacy is a gift. It, it's not something that should be forced upon anyone. They'll bring up verses like Genesis 2.18 that God said it's not good for man to be alone. And even in Matthew 19, where Paul says that he would prefer everyone be celibate, uh, he says it is good for uh, unmarried uh, and widows to stay married, but if they can't control themselves, they should marry. So they're, they're making the point that being celibate is not good for you. Therefore, it's not something that God would have for your life. And so I want to ask you, do you see singleness and celibacy as a burden? How do you think through these issues? And how would you answer some of these revisionist points uh, that have to do with celibacy? Yes, it's th these arguments are, are kind of, we see them more and more, um, sadly, in the church today. I think they are deeply um, mistaken and problematic. Um 
not least in they're taking something that is is less clear and using it to overturn something that is very clear. It is very clear in the scriptures that any kind of same-sex romantic or sexual behavior is is against the will of God. So to take a, a scripture like the one where Paul says, you know, it's better to, to marry than to, to burn with passion, um, to use that as an ex, as a way of validating what is clearly an unbiblical kind of relationship, I think is to to do violence to the word of God. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, the, the Bible sexual ethic is very, very clear. Um, we see that on the lips of Jesus in Matthew 19. We see it throughout the scriptures about the, the, the you know, marriage being between a man and a woman, that being the only context for a sexual relationship. What we then see throughout the rest of the Bible is, is again, the, the just the overwhelming goodness of God. And both marriage and singleness are given as gifts of God. They're gifts of, of common grace. Um, believers and unbelievers alike can enjoy these gifts. There are challenges to being single, but then there are also challenges to being married. And I think one of the things that we've we've done in our, our culture is we have so invested ultimate significance and, and meaning in romantic fulfillment that we presume anything that is other than romantic fulfillment must be a, a lesser way right. of living. That is profoundly unbiblical and sets all kinds of crazy expectations of what, you know, marriage is, is meant to be like anyway. Yes. So Paul says singleness is a good thing. He commends it in, in 1 Corinthians 7 in, in language that would surprise many people today. Um, we also see Paul commending marriage. Both are good gifts from God. Both have their own ups and downs, and the danger is that we compare the downs of singleness with the ups of marriage, and we forget that mm. there are downs of marriage and there are ups of singleness. That is a uh, great point. So, yeah, it, it's it's not always easy being single, but then I, I speak to my married friends, and I know it's not always easy being married either. Um, yeah. That the fall has, has meant that's going to be the case, whatever our marital status. But in terms of it not being good for man to be alone, that is obviously very true, which is why the Bible commends to us the importance of, of being in community and of our churches being places of deep friendship and a sense of spiritual family. So mm. being single shouldn't mean that you are spending your life alone. And if it does mean that, it means our churches are not being all that the Bible requires them to be. Just before we get into talking about some of the material in your newest book, you wrote a book on singleness, Seven Myths About Singleness. Just quickly give us, what would you say are the top couple of myths about singleness that, that Christians have bought into, and, and how would you respond to those myths? I think the, the, the primary one is that singleness is bad for you, that it's just mm. intrinsically bad, it's dehumanizing, it's unhealthy, it's repressive, all of those things. And therefore, any um, sexual ethic that, you know, means that some people are going to remain single rather than be married is therefore seen as as deeply problematic and needing to be changed, hence the Reformation Project. So, but that is very easy to overturn because, again, Paul, uh, we see the same in, in the teachings of Jesus, continually speaking of singleness in, in very positive ways. And I think the other one is that, that singleness, singleness means that we, we don't experience deep, rich community, um, that it's it's necessarily isolating. And that can be the case, but again, because our culture has put so much 
focus on romantic fulfillment, we've downgraded all other forms of, of friendship and relating to one another, which can mean it, you, there is a there is a lack of friendship uh, in many places today. Mm-hmm. But again, if we if we read our Bibles carefully, that's on us. That's not on God. <laughs> Um, we are called to have deep, rich friendships, to have appropriate forms of, of intimacy within our, our local church contexts. Yeah. Well, in your latest book, you note that several years ago, people would have in culture probably would have found the Bible's teaching on sexuality to be old fashioned. But today it's not only seen as old-fashioned and outdated, but possibly harmful. I I hear that word harmful all the time in reference to biblical teaching on sexuality, even dangerous to society. So what do you think has happened in our culture that's caused people to view biblical teaching on sexuality that way? Why do you think that is? Well, a, a massive shift has happened in the last 10 to 15 years, which has been that we have more than ever before located our deepest forms of identity in in our sexual attractions and our romantic relationships and all of those things so you are your sexuality and therefore the the kind of most fundamental way you can truly express yourself is through mm. romantic fulfillment now if, if that is if that is the baseline cultural assumption then to deny anyone the opportunity of finding the romantic fulfillment they feel is right for them is seen as not just, you know, constraining them by an old-fashioned sexual ethic, but actually it's robbing them of, of the ability to be who they are. It's, it's kind of become that fundamental um, to our understanding of what makes yeah. us human. And this is, this is often a very unconscious, undeclared assumption that is going on. Um, so I, I gave a, an evangelistic talk at a, at a Durham University in the UK just a few weeks ago um, on the subject of why does, why does God care who I sleep with? Lo- hundreds of, of students came and lots of interesting conversations afterwards. But there were two young ladies in particular who came up and they, they were very angry mm. and they kept saying, and this is, and again, the key word is harmful. They kept saying, this is harmful. And I said, it is only harmful if your entire anthropology is, is predicated on the basis that, you know, the self has to be sexually expressed in order to, to be fulfilled. Um, I said, so let's talk about that assumption. But at the moment, you're assuming it. Yeah. And therefore, including something about what I'm saying without critically examining your own underlying assumptions. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a very, again, these these things are so subtle and it's the oxygen that the, all of us have been breathing for the last decade and a bit. Yeah. And so we don't even notice that that is part of the superstructure now of, of how most of us think. Yeah, it's almost as if it went from being like, oh, that's what you do to who you are. And that's why it's yeah. become so much more of a, a lightning rod topic, I think. It's exactly that. Yeah. So yes, we, we've got to do that that deeper kind of stepping back work of, of saying, well, actually, let's, let's, let's just check we've understood what it means to be human and, and how we, you know, that the, the big yeah. message today is the real you is who you feel yourself to be deep down inside. And that you must be expressed and fulfilled. Um, yeah. And the primary way of doing that is through 
sexual fulfillment and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And we're seeing this even in the church. Uh, well, in the I would say the progressive Christian church, I recently reviewed Nadia Boltz Weber's book uh, called Shameless, in which she argues that the historic Christian ethic regarding sexuality doesn't just need a few tweaks. She's saying we need to burn it to the ground and completely start over. And a lot of the assumptions in that book are that the biblical teaching for sexuality represses people. She even made the point in the book that asking Christians to wait until they get married to have sex uh, really hinders their sexual development and their sexual flourishing. And I think that's right in line with what we're seeing in culture. In fact, uh, just thinking about all the things that are going on in the world as we're recording this, I don't know what it will be like by the time we post this uh, podcast, but as we're recording it, it's right at the height of the whole coronavirus scare. Uh, Everybody's staying in their homes and uh, there's no toilet paper anywhere right now as we're as we're recording and there's all kinds of craziness going on in the world just a, a few weeks ago a tornado ripped through downtown Nashville and there are people without homes there are earthquakes happening in other countries there are people starving to death there's a homeless issue there's so many things going on in the world so many problems and so a lot of people are thinking, why, with all of this going on in the world, would God care about who I sleep with? Why Why would that even be on his radar? And so this is something you address in your new, new book. So Sam, why does God care who we sleep with? Thank you. And that is precisely why people ask that question. Um, and I, I kind of want to turn the question around to, to people and say, well, given you know, homes have been falling down, lives are being lost, all the rest of it. Why are you bothered that God would care who someone sleeps with? Uh. But the answer is because God cares who we sleep with because he cares about the people who are doing the sleeping. Mm. God cares about us. Uh, we, we profoundly matter to him. And so it may feel like an, an unwanted intrusion into our sexual freedom, but actually it's the expression of a really profoundly good thing that we matter. We, we do matter to God. And actually, sex matters to God. Um, we, we often say things like, oh, it's just physical, or it's just the exchange of bodily fluids, and all these things. But we, we know that that's not the case. Um, we, you know, our laws around sexual assault acknowledge the fact that something, a, a deeper wrong is being done. Yeah than when it is merely physical assault, um, precisely because sexual violation is more than what is happening physically. Right. And given that, it's not surprising God cares about it. Uh, and, you know, he invented it. <laughs> we didn't discover yeah. sex back. He's the one who invented it and gave it to us as a gift to be rightly understood and, and enjoyed in the appropriate context. Yeah. So... It's, it's good to know that we, we matter to God and, and our bodies matter to God. How we use our bodies matter to God. How we use our, our sexual feelings matters to God. And I, I keep coming back to, to Matthew 5 and Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, where he not only condemns, you know, looking at someone else lustfully, but he, by doing so, tells us that our sexual dignity is so important to him that he he cares about how people think about us, mm. how people even look at us. That matters to him as well. Yeah. So it's all it's all evidence that, that human sexuality is meant to be profoundly significant and important, and therefore God cares about it. Yeah. Um, 
cares about it enough to to give directives on on how to steward and use our sexuality in a, in in healthy ways, as well as warnings about what actually is is not going to be good for us. Yeah, and and let's let's go to Matthew five because this this is such a powerful part of your book, and I've heard you lecture on this, and it's it's sort of the centerpiece of of your argument is you're saying essentially. I'm a follower of Jesus, and so what Jesus believes about sexuality is what I want to believe about sexuality. So let's figure out what did Jesus believe about sexuality? What did he teach about human sexuality? And so you you frame a lot of this around the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, so let's dig a little deeper there. Tell us what's going on when Jesus famously says, you have heard it said, but I say, and he does this with several different things. And often uh, people in greater culture, even some Christians will say, well, look, Jesus was actually saying, you've heard it said, and then he quotes an Old Testament text or, or some sort of tradition. And then he says, but I say, so he, he's overturning all of that. He's contradicting it. He's giving us something new. But I love the way you frame this in your book, because you're essentially saying, no, that's, he's not contradicting an Old Testament uh, command. He's actually bringing it into greater focus. So talk to us about what's going on. And, and in reference to adultery, when, when Jesus gives the command about adultery, also let us know what was going on in that first century world for that Jewish audience that Jesus was addre- addressing. What did they understand adultery to mean in the context that Jesus was was using it? So Jesus is is taking some of those um, Ten Commandments and showing how people have twisted what the commandments mean to make them more obeyable, to make them more doable. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus is, is trying to untwist those things and say, actually, this is what the commandment is really getting at. And therefore, he's trying to show us the whole point of the commandments is not to give us an opportunity to completely shine at how amazing we are, how obedient we are. Um, The whole point of those commandments is to expose how lacking in capacity we are when it comes to obeying God and being the people he wants us to be. So he takes the commandment like, you know, do not commit adultery. And he says, this is not merely about what you do in your bedroom. It's about what you do in your heart. It's about how it's even about how you look at someone. And so a lot of those listeners um, to the Sermon on the Mount, presumably, possibly all of them were men. Um, many of them would have been thinking, well, I'm I'm pretty good on this one. I've, I've never I've never had an affair. Mm. I've never slept with someone else's spouse or anything like that or betrayed my own spouse. And so I could imagine a lot of them thinking, oh, yeah, Jesus, this is going to be a this is going to be an easy one. And then when Jesus takes that commandment and applies it not just to our external behavior, but to our heart attitude, hmm. I'm sure it would have been deeply, deeply convicting for them. Um, and it's interesting. I think we have a different set of assumptions in our own context today. I think a lot of Christians are thinking, you know, Jesus is far more, you know, Jesus was fine with things like homosexuality. He was kind of sexually um, you know, laid back and didn't really mind what people did. He was less strict than the Old Testament. And you kind of think, actually, if you read what Jesus says, he takes the Old Testament sexual ethic and then intensifies yeah, it. He doesn't yeah. it. He intensifies it. So he is not a pushover when it comes to this. And yet there's this myth that seems to keep doing the rounds that 
you know, well, Paul was the one who had all the hang-ups, or the Old Testament was draconian, but Jesus is kind of, is just a kind of hippie when it comes to these things. Mm. And you think, well, it just shows that those people have never read the teachings of Jesus. Yeah. Because, again, he is he is not easy. Um, and the aim of that teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is to make every single one of us realize how deeply sinful we are in our hearts. Um the message of, of Matthew 5 on adultery isn't, you know, God has given you a pure heart, so maintain and protect your purity. And in the moment you lose your purity, you've blown it and lost it forever. Jesus is saying, you are adulterous in your heart. Mm. You already are. And that's why it's good news that he came for us, because he, he came for the adulterous in heart. And how would how would that first century Jewish audience have understood adultery? It, would it just have been sleeping with someone who wasn't your spouse, or what did that mean to them? Yeah, it was it was basically about external behavior. Um, it was about being physically unfaithful to your spouse or to someone else's. And so, provided you weren't sleeping with someone who you weren't married to, you were obeying the commandment as far as they were concerned. Uh, which again is why why Jesus is so. Yeah challenging because he, he takes it to a far, far deeper level and says this is not about trying to cultivate external social norms. This is about trying to expose the human heart in, in every dimension of its sinfulness. Yeah, um, so it which really, it would have a lot to say even about pornography and, and things of, of that nature, wouldn't it? Totally. And you, you can see why, you know, you can see why they crucified him, um, because basically all the obedience they thought they had racked up, Jesus is saying, actually, you've missed the whole point of the whole commandment. Uh, mm. You are not the obedient people you think you are. And that that, that challenge is the same for us. And, and you're right, it applies not merely to if the fact that Jesus applies it to how you look about look at someone and how you think about another person's sexuality shows us that even, yeah, looking at pornography, uh, having any kind of lustful thought about anyone else is breaking that commandment. Um, mm. So it's a far broader concept of adultery, far broader and far deeper than they realized then and that many of us realize now. Yeah. One of the things that's been so sort of eye-opening for me in Christian culture it's not you would expect the world to act a certain way but uh, my pastor recently was giving a sermon on marriage and he mentioned that and this is a conservative church that holds to a historic biblical sexual ethic but he was saying that and i i i have the sense that this is probably a problem in a lot of churches where often they'll do some premarital counseling for a couple that's going to be getting married and then they'll discover that this couple who is attending the church regularly, reading their Bibles, essentially doing everything that a Christian would be doing, but they're living together before they get married. And so he was talking about how they have to counsel them to move apart until they get married. And and it just seems like there's this disconnect with a lot of people of our current generation, even among the church and among Christians who have a difficult time understanding why the Bible would be against premarital sex. And so I just want to ask you this, if a couple knows they're going to get married and they're committed to each other, but they haven't actually gotten married yet, why should they wait until marriage to have sex? What would be the reason that that God would, would give that as part of his law? It, it is a good question, and it's 
you're exactly right in, in how many where many people are at today, even in in, in the church. Um, the, the reason is because is sex before and outside marriage is actually a different act to what sex is meant to be within marriage. Sex is meant to be, and I'm borrowing some language here from, from Tim Keller, but it, it's meant to be a way of saying to your spouse that I give myself to you fully, exclusively, and permanently. That's what sex is meant to express. It, it's a form of self-giving. Uh, culturally, we, we've made it into a form of self-expression and of self-gratification. Mm. Uh, and so it's about me taking something from someone else for my own sense of pleasure and, and fulfillment and gratification. In the Bible, it's meant to be a means of self-giving. And so for that to be the case, if it is meant to be a way of giving all that you are as a person to someone else in a way that is exclusive and lifelong, then you need to know that both of you both of you are up for that. Um, what you're doing by having sex before marriage, even if you're intending to get married, is you are trying to, to take from one form of union without actually having given your whole self to the other person yet. It's a form of theft. Yeah, um, that's, a good, that's a good word. So it's a very, it's a very different thing. Um, and if a Christian couple is thinking, well, we're going to get married anyway, let's just have sex now. It makes me think they've not understood sex and they've not understood the mar- understood marriage. Um, and they're not, you know, something's gone seriously wrong with their understanding of Jesus as well. Um, so I, I would say that to me is a very serious concern. Yeah. And when, when people hear Christians talk about the issue of sexuality, often they just hear a bunch of no's. You can't do this. You can't do this. You shouldn't do that. But I love that in your book, you talk about the better story and why this matters to God. So what is the better story that you write about? Yeah, and I, I agree with you. that, I, And part of the reason we, we are in the mess we're in today, I think, is is because culture is just better at discipleship than, than many of our churches are when it comes to human sexuality. Mm. And a lot of pastors, my observation at least, is that a lot of pastors are merely teaching this generation what they had themselves have been taught when they were that age, which was 30, 40 years ago. And mm-hmm. we, were in a, we were in a very different culture then. And so maybe 30 years ago it worked to say to people, you know, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, and you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage. And people sort of had a framework where they could, you know, sort of muddle through with that way of thinking. But today there's a massive dis- – if pastors are even teaching on this at all, and many of them are not, they're teaching in a way that isn't actually engaging with the way people are thinking now, which is why we, we've got to move beyond the prohibitions. The prohibitions are there, but the prohibitions only make sense in the light of the wider context in which they come, which is the, the bigger biblical narrative of – of of God, you know, the story of the Bible being a romance, um, that God, God presents himself, reveals himself to be the divine groom. Um, he's the, 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 the divine husband who makes covenant promises to his people. Um, and you begin to see that the, the relationship God wants with his people all through the Bible is marital, and that part of part of what is going on with, with the gift of human sexuality is God has built into us physically 
a kind of reflection of what he is seeking to do in, in winning people to his son. And so that that deep yearning and need we feel for connection that often is at the heart of, of much of our romantic and sexual longing is meant to be something of a memory trace to us of, of the deeper longing for which we were made, the deeper connection for which we were made, which is to, to know Jesus. And you begin to look at human sexuality in the light of that wider narrative of, of the scriptures and you begin to it makes sense then of the particular shape that marriage has in christian thinking it makes sense of why it is one man and one woman rather than two people of the same sex it makes sense of why there are, are two parties uh, to a marriage and not three or four or five or more um, it makes sense of why a, a, a believer is is not to marry outside the faith it makes sense of why sex is is reserved for marriage it's a form of covenant renewal of expressing something that has already been pledged and given and promised and so that that to me makes therefore then makes sense of the prohibitions and whenever the bible gives us a negative we always need to ask the question what is the bigger positive that this negative is protecting when god says no to something what is the bigger yes oh that's that yeah, he's that's making good. us um, you know, say yes to. That's that's a great uh, way to think about it. Well, it's uh, was it Chesterton or someone who said, you know, before you pull down the fence, you better see what it was put there for in the first place. Right. Yeah. And so if, if, if we stumble across a, a fence in the Old Testament that says you shouldn't have sex with people of the same gender as you, rather than just tearing it down and going, well, we know far more now and they were so un- unenlightened then is to think, well, hang on, what? What might this be protecting that I'm about to to risk mm. by tearing it down? Yeah. Um, and that's the case with all all the, the the prohibitions about different forms of sexual behaviour. They're all an expression of a, a protection of the vision for human sexuality that we see throughout the whole Bible. Yeah, that's beautiful. And as we close out here. If you could speak to anyone listening who might be struggling with God's teachings on sexuality in any sphere, or even more specifically struggling with their own sexuality, what what words would you offer them as we as we close out today? Um, I, I would simply say that that Jesus has come precisely um, because we are people who do struggle with these things. If he's if he's got if he's not good news for the the sexual sinner, he's not good news for anyone. Um, and the best place to immerse yourself in that good newsness of Jesus uh, for sexual sinners, sexual strugglers, the sexually broken, is to look at how how he offers the the woman at the well in John chapter four life and fulfilment and meaning and satisfaction through himself. That all the things that we are tempted by in our broken sexuality, we will ultimately find in the appropriate way and in far greater measure in Jesus himself. We we will never end up with more outside of Jesus than we will inside of, of being in Christ. The book is called Why Does God Care Who We Sleep With? It's out now. And I'll again, I'll post a link for you to follow Sam on social media and get some of his other books. Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today and uh, on this sensitive topic. But I, I, I think this is going to minister to a lot of people. So thanks so much for being here. 
Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button or subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.